0: weeks uh, we'll be talking about gospel transformation how the gospel changes us from the inside out and with that, we have the privilege of having Reverend Brett Rayo, uh begin off this section for us this morning through this passage. Uh, we know Brett through our very own missionary, Michael O. I had the opportunity to meet uh, and spend some time with him this week. He's here uh, in Stateside for a few weeks. Uh, he's the director and team leader of Christ Bible Institute in Nagoya, Japan. And the institute is not only an institute for teaching, it is also a seminary, it also runs church planning center, it also has a cafe uh, where they engage non-Christians through those means. So they do many things, as I found out this week. I'm sure he'll tell you more, uh, but Reverend Brett Rail will be preaching the word uh, for us this morning. So let's give him a hand and a warm welcome at our church. good to be with you all this morning. Um, I've really enjoyed my uh, my visit with Pastor Luke. Um, lots of things that are going on here. It's an exciting uh, congregation to be able to spend time with. Uh, got to spend a little time with your child care workers this morning and shared a little message with them and was just encouraged by their uh, servanthood, they're doing this hard work that frees you all up so that you can give me your undivided attention right now, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so really thankful to be with you. Um, as Pastor Luke shared, my name is Brett, and I serve as a missionary in Nagoya, Japan. Um, I'm the director and team leader there. I've been in that role for about five years, and I took over uh, for Michael O. Michael founded our ministry, Christ Bible Institute, about 15 years ago. And uh, about five years ago, I took over um, as team leader for him. And uh, it, it was a really big challenge. I felt um, really unworthy to follow um, both a, a godly man and also a, a very accomplished uh, leader. And, uh, and Michael's been a kind, supportive person for me um, through that transition as I've learned many things the hard way. And, um, and I'm really thankful for that. I... Um, this morning, as we, we look at our passage, um, Luke chapter 18, uh, as I share with you, I, I have a couple different things in mind. Number one is, I, I want you um, to know a little bit more about the church in Japan. Uh, just a little bit more, hopefully, and that that would encourage you to pray and, and to give and, and to support. We actually have a couple of our incoming CBI team members that are with us this morning. They go to the other renewal campus, um, the Kim family. There's a couple of them right there. Uh, Rachel's probably back with the other two girls. They've got three children. Um, so it's really thankful to have them. So we want you to pray for families like this and to support families like this as they go out um, and serve in a place like Japan. So it's helpful for you to know a, a little bit more. But I also, uh, I want to speak to you and, and I want to try to connect where you are. And, uh, and since I'm in Philadelphia, um, I, I feel like I should probably start with something related to football uh, to open us up. I don't know. Um, I really didn't know much about what it was like to be a Philadelphia football fan um, until I uh, had a friend in high school who was from Philadelphia. His family is from Philadelphia. And one time we were sitting around, and we were talking about sports, and I had a pretty casual relationship with most teams. And, um, and he began to, to share how when the Eagles had lost a particular game, uh, I think to miss the playoffs, how he started crying, and I started laughing at him, <laughs> laughing in his face, and and my friend, who's a brother in Christ, got offended <laughs> that I was laughing at him. It wasn't a laughing matter for him; he was really hurt by this. And so it, it showed me that there was this whole other level of fandom that was uh, that was really interesting. I shared it with a friend later, and I was like, "Hey, my 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 buddy got kind of upset at me when I made fun of him for crying after the Eagles lost." and uh, or after, the, after his football team lost, and, and he was like, oh yeah, that's kind of weird. He's like, where's he, f- what, what team is it? And I was like, Philadelphia. He goes, oh, I got it. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so anyways, it's, uh, it's fun to be with you all. And I want to start by talking about um, this idea of shame. And, um, and, and I want you to think about something that, you know, you have felt ashamed of. Maybe a recent experience of shame. And these, these, some of these might be uh, more serious types of, of things, but some of them may be kind of silly things as well. Um, I, uh, I was born and raised a, a fan of the Washington Redskins, and I'm not proud of that right now. <laughs> it is, it's been a miserable decade for us, and, uh, and so I inherited that. That was handed to me as a child. That This was the team that I would cheer for, and, and it's been uh, difficult to watch them through the years. It's really affected my, my uh, relationship with football, that and living in Japan, so the time zone thing doesn't help out very much. But um, but in a, in a more real way, this this morning I was thinking about um, some recent experiences of shame for me, and I was like, man, I wonder what would be a good thing to share with them. And I had in, in as I was thinking about this, I was drinking a really good cappuccino. I love coffee. Um, we had a coffee shop as part of our ministry for a long time. We we roast our own beans. We have our own uh, coffee in the building. It's really good and I've developed this real love for coffee. So I'm drinking a cappuccino on the way over here. It's a good cappuccino. I'm really happy and I'm trying to think of a recent experience of shame. And about that time I hit a bump as I was drinking my cappuccino and I had a new experience of shame to tell you about because the coffee spilled all over me. And, uh, and so immediately, I hit to the side of the road, and I'm like, oh no, I'm on my way to, to share with Renewal this morning, and I've got coffee on me, what am I going to do? So I grab a water bottle, and I'm just pouring it on my shirt, trying to get the coffee stain out as much as possible. And, and, and really, there's a, a, a fear and an experience of shame that I had that I might enter in this morning to stand in front of you with coffee all over my shirt. Um... And, and here's the deal, that, that shame wasn't motivated because I was afraid that uh, coffee on my shirt would be a distraction for you, and you wouldn't hear the gospel, and it might impact your— experience. that wasn't what I was worried about. I was worried with whether you would think less of me because I had coffee on my shirt, uh, because I care way too much about your opinions, even though we're, we're just getting to know each other. And so shame is this interesting thing that's, that's really um, developed in the midst of a community— and I feel like I've learned a lot about shame over the past five years because Japan, in many ways, is the school of shame. Um, they have perfected shame. They have made it an art form. And uh, many other Eastern Asian countries have, have a really big focus on shame. And, and America is not a, a place that, that doesn't struggle with shame, especially with the rise of social media. Shame plays a bigger role in our lives. And, and some of you may come from family backgrounds where, where shame plays a really dominant role in your lives. But for me, going to Japan was really where I started to actually learn about shame for the first time. So the truth is, I don't really fit that well in Japan. Um, when uh, when I'm announced at a gathering like this as being from Japan, uh, it's all, people always kind of give me an interesting look, like, wait a second, oh, he must be a missionary, okay. So in the church, it makes sense. In, in another context, they're like, you live in Japan, why do you live in Japan? And because and, uh, I, I don't look Japanese, and um, and in that in that context, there's so many uh, other elements of my personality that just don't fit well. I'm loud and Japanese people are quiet. I'm uh, fairly assertive and, and usually share my opinion pretty quickly and, and Japanese people usually hold their opinion back until they they really have to share it. I usually share more directly what I'm thinking and and Japanese communication is all about indirect communication. And, um, and so for me, uh, living and serving in Japan uh, I, I've learned how to navigate those things right to, to we have a multicultural team we want to show love for one another and deference to one another but uh, but in reality I just I don't fit that well and that's caused me to experience a lot of shame and another element in Japan is it's one of the most monolithic places in the world. Everyone is, you're either Japanese or you're not. We have a, a, a bright young guy on our team, really gifted. He's Japanese-American. He grew up in Michigan, mostly in a Japanese home. He speaks Japanese really well. When people meet him, they don't know that he's not from Japan. He looks Japanese. He speaks Japanese excellently. But as soon as they find out that he has some amount of Americanness in his background, he's deemed a foreigner. He's considered a foreigner. So just think of how I'm, treat- how I'm treated or how I'm received. Um, certainly as a foreigner. And, and so as we're trying to make our home in Japan, my, I've, I've got two little children, and we, we came back, and, and my kids, that's their home. My, my son is in California a couple weeks ago, and he's craving curry rice. Um, that's what he misses, and, and, and that's, he's getting homesick for curry rice. And yet we're foreigners in this place that we call home, and, and there's a lot of shame that, that comes alongside of this. Um, the, the truth is that the church in Japan... Uh, suffers a lot with, with shame. Because in Japan, to be Japanese means to be Buddhist or Shinto. It's not that really anyone cares about the religious practices of Buddhist and Shinto. Japan is actually one of the most non-religious countries in the world. It's the second most non-religious country in the world. And yet, when it comes time for someone to potentially convert, all of a sudden, well, I, I can't because I'm Buddhist. I can't because I'm Shinto. I can't become a Christian. I can't be baptized because I'm Japanese. Well, that's interesting, because God made you, and he made you Japanese, and, and he's calling you to himself. He's redeeming you through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, but, but I'm Japanese. And so there's this uh, position that the church in Japan has taken, uh, which is one of, of living in constant shame, where you ought to be quiet and uh, keeping the harmony. For a Japanese Christian to go home to visit their family during one of the major holidays, either in August or on Obon or around the New Year, uh, it, it's it's a rough experience for a lot of Japanese Christians because um, that's when ancestor worship takes place, uh, veneration of ancestors, usually through offering of incense and sometimes other practices. And, and it's really hard for them to know what they should do and what they should not do. And when they decide not to offer incense to an ancestor, you know, to have a mother pull aside a child and say, you're tearing this family apart. Okay? Um, so, so that's the backdrop as I read this passage uh, this morning. And, um, and I want to look at that, but I'd, I'd like to pray for us as we begin to enter into God's Word. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this church. Lord, I'm, I'm encouraged by um, the things that you're doing in their midst. Lord, I'm even encouraged by their name, Lord, to to align themselves with the desire for constant renewal, renewal in the gospel. Lord, would you uh, make this a place of renewal? Would you work in our hearts now? Would you free us uh, from the things that would cause us to hide? Would you draw us close to yourself, and would you use your word? We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as we look at this passage, uh, there's a few things I want to point out just as part of the background. Um, Number one is the location. Where where are we? Where is this taking place? Well, the location's really interesting because it's describing Jesus and his disciples going near to Jericho. Any of you ever heard of Jericho before? Um, This is a place in the Old Testament that bears a lot of significance. It would have been a famous place, and a place that's famous for a miracle. And if you remember what happened there, the people of Israel were entering into the Holy Land, and they were told, this mighty, fortified city with these big walls and all kinds of resources inside, it's yours. And you're going to win. You're going to fight against this city, and you are going to win. And the people of Israel are looking, and they don't have technology to destroy these walls. They don't have clever skills to scale these walls. And and their army is, is not even necessarily that large to go against such a fortified foe. And, uh, and so their immediate response is, how is this even possible? And God says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it for you. Walk around the wall and follow my instructions. Blow your trumpets, shout, and when you do that, the walls will come a-tumbling down, to, to quote the old Sunday school song. The walls will fall and I will give you the city. And, uh, and, and what's really wonderful is that the people of Israel, and so many examples of the people of Israel are of them disobeying God, of them failing to do what God has called them to do. And even in the midst of doubt, there's faith that leads the people of Israel to follow God's commandment and to walk around the wall and to obey him. And, uh, and God does exactly that. And you can almost imagine them walking around the walls and, and feeling kind of ashamed because here they are as like warriors who have come to um, take this city in the name of God and, and to claim it as their own, and now they're, they're just marching about this, this city and uh and and there there probably was some experience of shame that they would have felt there and and yet as they follow the lord and as they obey the lord keeps his promise and the walls fall down and he gives the people of israel the city so this is a place that has a a a background in the history of the lord working in a miraculous way so it's appropriate for what's about to happen to take place as they draw near to jericho Um, it's also important for us to notice when this passage takes place. So this is in the height of Jesus's ministry. This is right before he enters Jerusalem riding on a colt, and, uh, which we call the triumphal entry. It's right before he enters the final week of his ministry here on earth. And, uh, and, and Jesus, up until this point, it's, it's really been kind of quiet about kind of who he is, and he would do these miracles, and then he would tell people to to, to be quiet and, and to keep it down, not to tell everyone about it yet. But now it, it, it's getting to be very well known just how powerful Jesus is, and his miracles are becoming more public, and, and in many ways more powerful. This is the climax of Jesus's ministry, and uh, and it, it culminates now in, in, in many ways with this blind beggar. and uh, And so that leads us to the last part of the background, which is just saying, who? Who is in this passage? Who is it that we're learning about? And front and center to everything is Jesus himself, our Messiah. And and we're paying attention to what it is that Jesus does. But there's another important figure here that Luke calls a blind man. In the Gospel of Mark, in in his recounting of this passage, he actually names the man. He says that his name is Bartimaeus, uh, which would have meant the son of Timaeus, which means maybe people who are reading Mark's Gospel knew who Timaeus was, and, and this was a way of sort of identifying. Um, but for Luke, he's, he's just a blind man. And he's not just a blind man, he's a blind man sitting by the roadside begging. Because in this culture, and in this setting, in this time period, to be a blind person was essentially to become a beggar. And there was because of the weakness and the disability, there was a lot of shame that was placed on folks. You may remember, um, as John describes, a blind man who the religious leaders of that day accused this blind man either of sinning himself while he was in the womb, or of his parents committing some gross sin, which would cause him to be born blind. So for a man like this, the, the religious leaders are looking at him and wondering, skeptical, well, he, he probably did something to deserve it. So there's shame associated with this, and because of his disability, he's not able to really work, as, as most folks would, with their hands. And so here he is in this position of begging. As I read about the blind man, I, I, it's interesting for me, because in Japan they, they have this thing called tactile pavement. And it's really amazing. It's quite fascinating. It frustrated me when I first found it, because it's basically raised grooves in the pavement that's near um, train stations and airplanes and areas of public transportation. Has anybody ever been to Japan seen this? Yellow pavement? Okay, a couple of folks. Um, so anyways, I, the reason I didn't like it at first is because my suitcase would tip over whenever I would like, be going somewhere, and it would hit this raised pavement. It would tip over and get annoyed by it. But I discovered that what this is for is it's actually for people who are seeing impaired. These, these grooves that run alongside the sidewalk allow someone to take a walking stick and guide themselves so that they can get around. It's a way of caring for those who are seeing impaired. And, uh, and in Japan, it's really fascinating because a lot of this is because it's a shame-based place. Um, they want to free these people from the experience of shame, of being a constant burden on someone, so that someone doesn't always have to lead them around, and so they can be self-sufficient and, and maintain harmony in the society and, and whatnot. But it's a kind gesture, nonetheless, to... Uh, to provide this room, I remember the first time I, s- I was sitting on the subway, I had no idea the gentleman sitting across from me was seeing impaired. And, um, and suddenly we stopped, and he stood up, and he, he pulled out his walking stick. And I realized that, that it, was a, it was a blind man, and, and he, he turned around, and he found the, the exit, and he stepped off the train, and reached around until he could find the tactile pavement, and then just walked off by himself. Completely alone, getting on and off the subway. Just amazing. Um... So as we think about this experience of shame that the blind man here near Jericho might have been experiencing, it, 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 that's, that's not really the, the shame maybe that would be experienced by a blind person in Japan today, but honestly, I, I think that we could argue in some sense that it, it's easier to be a blind person in Japan than it is to be a Christian, because to be a Christian means you need to be quiet about the things that matter most to you, um, Author Makoto Fujimura, a Japanese uh, artist that some of you may have seen some of his work or or read some things by him, describes this as a humie culture. Uh, Humie um, is a description in the first wave of Christian missions in Japan. There were these Jesuit missionaries that went in and and began to share the faith, and some people began to follow and joined um, and and called themselves Christians. And uh, there was an effort to unite Japan in part by making the Christians scapegoats. And so by doing that, um, at first they would kill these Christians. There's a, there's a monument today in Kyoto, right on this river, to the 52 martyrs. 52 men, women, and children who were uh, killed in this river and burned um, as part of this persecution effort. But those who were in control and leadership and in power at this time realized that this actually wasn't that effective because the, the uh, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And people began to actually rise up and, and, and cling to their uh, their faith even more. But what they began to do instead is to basically torture people to the point of recanting their faith, of uh, humiliating them and um, harming them to the point that someone would recant. And, and the way that they would make them recant is they would take a, a crucifix. Remember, this is Jesuit missionaries. They'd take a crucifix or they would take an image of ...of Jesus, and they would place it on the ground, and the the Japanese uh, Catholics were forced to step on it. And it was a way of showing that they renounced their allegiance to Jesus, to King Jesus. And a way of showing that their allegiance belonged only to Japan. So that's the backdrop. And and so uh, that Fumie, uh, Makoto Fujimura describes this as a Fumie culture, meaning that the Christians in Japan are forced to hide the things that are most precious to them. And, uh, and so as we look at this blind man who is forced to beg on the side of the road, there's, there's a parallel that we can draw. But uh, as we watch things begin to unfold, we, we see something really amazing happen. First, there's a, a crowd that, that begins to gather and, and this blind man hears the buzz and he's kind of wondering what's going on, so he asks someone and he says, what, what's happening? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. I, I can relate to this in some ways because one time I was walking through Nagoya Station, it's the world's largest train station, just a few blocks from where our building is located, and uh, and, and I was walking through this giant station, and there's this huge crowd that's gathered right next to the bullet train exit, and I was like, "What's going on?" Um, I had no idea. I didn't didn't hadn't heard anything, and so I started kind of looking around and. I kind of, you know, trying to figure out, I, was, I, I felt too embarrassed to ask anyone, but, um, and, and I didn't know, I was like, finally I was like, you know, I, I'm just going to go, I'm not going to know whoever the famous person who's getting off the train is anyway, but obviously someone well known was about to get off the train. I found out later it was the crown prince who, uh who's going to be crowned as the emperor next year when the, emperor, the current emperor abdicates. And, uh, and the, but the reality is that even if I'd stuck around, I, I would have had no idea who he was. I, I wouldn't have recognized him. I could have bumped into him on the train. I wouldn't have had any idea who he was. And, and here this blind man hears all this murmuring and this excitement, and he's wondering, what's going on? What's going on? And so he asks, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, uh, the contrast that um, Luke draws here between what the crowd calls Jesus and how they refer to Jesus and how Bartimaeus refers to Jesus is really Interesting. So they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. That's basically the most basic facts that you can say about Jesus. Jesus was obviously gaining notoriety in this point. Like, people know who he is in these surrounding cities. And there's an excitement about his ministry and an eagerness to see and experience some of the things that he's doing. But to say Jesus of Nazareth, that's just saying, like, that's his name. That's who he is. That's the the lowest kind of respectful thing that they could possibly say about him. And that's all the crowd had at that point. He was Jesus of Nazareth for them. But the blind man sees something that the crowd doesn't see. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What does that language, son of David, mean? He was calling Jesus the Messiah. Son of David is messianic language. He's referring to Jesus as the coming Messiah, the one who has come to restore Israel, to free them from their oppression. To deliver them into the new world. And so this blind man sees something that the crowd doesn't see. Now as we say that, it's it's really amazing that this blind man uses this language. Up until this point, the only people that have called Jesus and used Messianic language for Jesus is is Peter, right, When when he confesses that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the disciples with him. And the demons who say that Jesus is the Son of God. Nobody else at this point has said, Son of David. This is the the first non-disciple to to make this declaration. And isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that this blind man realized that Jesus is the Son of David and, and, and had the faith to refer to him in that way, even though the crowd called him Jesus of Nazareth. So we're done, right? That's the end of the message. You guys can get a snack before football. No, we're not, we're not quite done. got a little bit more. Why? Because the point of the passage is not that, Jesus, that Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David. The point of this passage, the thing that's amazing about it, the reason that it's here, the reason that we celebrate it, is not because he can see something the crowd doesn't see and he manages to make this messianic reference to Jesus, even though that's a really remarkable thing. What is special about this passage? What's the point of this passage? It's the second cry of Bartimaeus. But before we can understand that cry, we have to see how the crowd responds. Because you would think the crowd would be excited. they say, oh, look at him, this this blind man. He said, Jesus, son of David. No, that's not how they respond at all. I imagine Bartimaeus having a terrible sounding voice. You know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me! And, And the crowd kind of plugging their ears and feeling uncomfortable. He's shouting when he should be quiet. He's putting himself forward when he should be in the background. He's causing a disturbance when he should let there be peace and let everyone enjoy the spectacles of what Jesus might do. And so what does the crowd do? It it, it says here in uh, Luke 18, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. They seek to silence him. They shun him. They shame him. So, as as we connect ourselves to this passage, I wonder if there are crowds in your life. As a Christian, if there are crowds in your life, if there are groups of people that, as you seek to align yourself with Jesus, respond to your faith by seeking to silence you, by seeking to shun you, or by seeking to shame you. Because this is the experience of Christians who live in Japan. Um, Parents whose children have converted, you know, there there may be some initial outrage about it, but, you know, eventually they they tend to accept it. Fine, you're a Christian. But then the expectation is that they won't do anything else. They're not going to bother the rest of the family by sharing the gospel with them. They're not going to disturb the peace by refusing to offer incense uh, at the holiday to their ancestors there's pressure to conform. same thing goes with the workplace. Like, okay, fine, that's weird, you're a Christian, but that's not supposed to mean that you would ask to have Sundays off to be able to gather for worship. And that's not supposed to mean that you're not, that you would push against the workaholism and the worship of work that expresses itself through 60 to 80 hour work weeks and going out and drinking all night with your coworkers to show allegiance to your company. You're not supposed to push against those things and say, actually, I have a family and, and part of my Christian duty is to go home and and care for my family, and be part of my family. You're not supposed to do that. Fine if you're a Christian, but you need to be quiet about it. The legacy of the church in Japan, and you can understand this because of what I shared about the early history of Christianity first entering Japan, is it's a legacy of hiding. In uh, the Protestant mission, as Japan becomes open again to the world um, through gunboat diplomacy from the American Commodore Perry, Uh, Protestant missionaries begin to flood into Japan and and they begin to share the gospel and start churches and denominations. That's probably the brightest spot in the history of of Japan's Christian experience. Um, The church begins to grow in organic ways. There are Japanese leaders in the church and and there's, there's a lot of hope. But that's essentially crushed by the rise of the Japanese empire. And the negotiation that takes place is basically, you need to worship the emperor if you want to continue to be a Christian. And so all uh, Christians were placed in one denomination that included in its confession that they would uh, honor or or venerate the emperor as an act of patriotism. So the idea was, yeah, you can do your private religion. I don't care what it is that you believe privately, but publicly, you are Japanese, and that means worshiping the emperor. We all do that together that makes sense and so the the thing that's really disturbing and, and hard about that experience is there really wasn't a whole lot of resistance from the Japanese church there were some but you can almost picture them looking back in history and seeing what happened before and desiring to avoid some of those experiences and so most of the Christians in Japan just went along with it and accepted it and privately they had faith but publicly they were idolaters Well, as uh, the Japanese empire fell, and as evangelical missionaries began to flood into Japan, um, we've, we've been present for about 80 years doing ministry in Japan. And the Lord's done different things, and we've seen churches started, and seminaries started, and people come to faith, and yet we haven't seen a significant movement of the gospel. And in large part, it's because Christianity hasn't really taken root in Japan. It hasn't really grown its roots deep into Japanese soil. It still feels in many ways like a borrowed religion from the outside. And that's why someone would respond when they're asked if they would like to be baptized. And they've been in church for a while and they love Christians. They love the gospel. I'm sorry, I can't. I'm Japanese. Because it feels like they would be surrendering what's most important to them. And so this encourages this experience of shame and hiding. But I wonder if we can relate. Perhaps in your workplace, perhaps in your families, you feel a similar kind of of pressure to be silent but what does bartimaeus do and what's um, instructive for us is we see this blind man who really has nothing to lose and realizes he has nothing to lose which leads him to do something really crazy he just in in a in a sense he he spits in the face of the crowd and he begins to cry out all the more jesus son of david have mercy on me Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps crying and crying and crying until Jesus listens. And what what happens from there? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, here's a few things that are going to happen because of this cry. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. So that's the first thing. The next thing is, and he followed him, glorifying God. So this man not only experiencing, experiences a, a healing miracle, he also experiences a miracle of regeneration of, of his own heart as he trusts in Christ, as he glorifies God for the things that are done to him. But the third thing is, is, is really fascinating. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the same crowd that was shunning him just a moment earlier. The same crowd that wanted him to be silent now is praising God because of the work of God in this man's life because he chose to make himself a nuisance. To cry out in desperation. To cry out longing for something to happen. And the reality is that Bartimaeus can't help it. He's got to cry cry out again. That's what faith and trust in Christ does. It makes us cry out. It makes us call to him. In Luke 19, Jesus says, if, if you shut up all of these people, the rocks are going to cry out. Okay, And, and, and the, the, the expression of our faith, the expression of our trust is, is crying out to Jesus. It's, it's trusting in him. But you see, crowds are fickle. And so for us to, to respond to the shame that's placed on us from the crowd by silencing our, ourselves, by, by uh, hiding the things that are most precious to us, is really just silly. Because the crowd is fickle. The crowd changes with the moment. Something happens and they have a totally different opinion. And here we see that this miracle actually causes the crowd to to praise and glorify God. So, where does this lead us? Well, the point of the passage is the second cry of help. And we can cry out to Jesus. It's an invitation for us to cry out to Jesus, no matter how ashamed we feel, how shunned we feel, how silenced we feel, or even how guilty we feel in sin. We're invited to cry out again. Because there's this there's this inverse relationship between shame and trust. To the extent that we trust in Christ, we experience a freedom and a courage in the face of our shame. But to the extent that we allow ourselves to be uh, uh, suffocated by shame, our trust withers. And so I, I close this morning by sharing about an experience that, that I had with this. And, and uh, as, as I began to serve in Japan, as I took on this leadership role, I, um, I had all these wonderful aspirations, all these God-wrought desires in my heart to see the Lord do a good work in Japan and, uh, and begin to work really hard. And, uh, and I felt like I had big shoes to fill. I had uh, Michael O. had been such this uh, wonderful leader for our ministry, and, and I wanted to, to uphold that reputation, right, for CBI and in Japan. And, and I wanted to serve the Japanese people and I wanted to be a good leader, and I really had very little idea what I was doing. I was learning everything on the fly. And uh, through the midst of this, the Lord actually gave us a lot of great fruit. People came to christ, seminary grew, started new ministries and uh and and in a lot of ways, things were going really well in my family where we had our son and we became pregnant with my my daughter and and um I was spending time with my family we were spending time in his word together and and so we were you know in terms of just the surface stuff, we were doing okay, but in my heart, there was this real struggle with, with being myself in Japan, with being the person that God had made me to be in Japan. And, uh, and this led to a lot of stress, an experience of a lot of stress. And that stress began to manifest itself, I didn't know this at the time, through physical symptoms. And so I started to get like numb hands and tingling in my hands. I would get these hot, cold sensations in my arms. I lost my sense of smell for a couple of weeks. Just weird stuff. And um, as, as some of these things started to, to pick up and the symptoms started to get worse, they were kind of on again, off again. I was like, what's going on with me? And I spent way too much time on WebMD and Google trying to figure out what's wrong. Never do that, by the way. It's like the worst way to respond when you, when you have something wrong. Just go see the doctor. But, um, but I'd spend all this time, and I'm in Japan, and it's difficult to go to the doctor, and, and the language barrier and challenges there. there. And, and so finally, I go and I see a doctor, and I get a clean MRI. Um, and uh, and so he says, you know, I, I think this might be a stress problem for you. This is a Japanese doctor. Um, he knows about stress. And I, I was kind of like, oh, okay. I didn't know stress could do that. That's kind of weird. So that, that was sort of in my back of my mind. I was like, I guess this is a stress thing. I didn't really believe it was a stress thing. The symptoms felt too real for it to be caused by this unseen force. And, and I didn't feel that stress. Things were going okay in our ministry. And... I wasn't working too, too many hours, and, and it felt like things were okay, but I wasn't paying attention to my own heart. And I wasn't paying attention even to my own relationship with the Lord. I wasn't paying attention to the things that were motivating me to do the good works of gospel ministry. And uh, this all sort of came to a head for me um, about two years ago. As uh, I, I went to see another doctor, and he told me that he thought that I had scoliosis. And I had scoliosis, and therefore that was probably what was causing my problems. I was like, oh no, no, I'm getting conflicting diagnoses from these doctors. And I just felt completely desperate, and uh, I wanted to know what was going on, what was happening. And so my wife and I just one night just prayed. We just said, Lord, would you guide us? Should we go back to the States for several weeks? Should we try to get some appointments with doctors that we can speak more freely with? Um, And uh, and we, we didn't really know, and we just prayed, and we asked God for guidance. And that night, I just, just for the heck of it, just to see, I, I went and looked at plane tickets online. And I found round-trip plane tickets from Nagoya, Japan, to Dallas, Texas, which is where our family is based in America, um, for $268. Um, it cost me uh, a good bit more than that to fly to Philadelphia this weekend. Okay, $268. So for us, I thought it was a pricing error. I was like, let's buy quick. We got to woke up my wife. She would already fallen asleep. I was like, we got to get these tickets. And, and um, as we booked the tickets, I, the, I, I called my assistant team leader the next day. And I was like, here's what we're thinking. I'm planning to go. I found these tickets. Am I crazy? Like, should we cancel this? And, uh, and he's like, no, go. Our team was really supportive. They, they, told, you know, they, they gave us encouragement. They said, yeah, go for a few weeks and, and let's get this checked out. See if you can figure out what's going on. And, and, um, and that began a journey for me of the Lord inviting me to come out of some of this shame and and some of this pressure and and to enjoy his grace and to really trust him. Um, We'd had a lot of really good things happen in our ministry. We'd also had a lot of hard things that had happened in our ministry. Um, The summer before all of this took place, we had a family of five who was on their way to join our team, the Pals family, who were killed in a car accident. The entire family of five, a semi, ran into the back of them They'd raised 100% of their support. They were a month out from being in Japan. And they were killed in a car accident. I got the call from one of the pastors of their church. and I went in last minute to their funeral and just this kind of crazy thing of getting there and then getting back to Japan. And I remember getting back from Japan and my hands were shaking. And my hands shook for like the next, off and on for the next several months until we ended up hitting this point. And so we're finally at this point where we're like, okay, we're going to go try to get some answers. And we felt like the Lord had had done a miracle for us. He provided these $268 plane tickets. Like He's with us, right? And, and yes, okay, here we go. And, and uh, we get to the airport, and one of our team members, Will Ruck, drove us in the van, to, our CBI van, to drop us off. And, and uh, we go to check in and open up the bag, and the passports are not in the pocket where I put them, And uh, in my mind where I put them. And I was like, I look at my wife and I got this look of fear and I'm like, I don't have the passports. They're not in the pocket. She's like, What do you mean you don't have the passports? And so as a, a good Christian missionary family, exemplars for all of you, we began to blame each other. <laughs> Why did you take them out? Where did you put them? Didn't you check before? I think my son was playing with them. Well, where did they go? You know, it's just back and forth. Our our friend Will Ruck is our team member. is just kind of standing there awkwardly (laughs) trying not to, you know, judge us too much. At least not externally in ways we can tell. And um, and so finally, we're just, you know, kind of desperate. We're tearing through these bags. We're not finding them. My wife said, Patton, my son, must have taken them out. He was playing with the bag. I bet he took them out. They're probably in our living room. Go home go get them. And I was like, fine, okay. So I grab the keys and I run outside. I sprint out to the parking lot and I get in the van and I drive and I realize I don't have the little ticket to, to get out. And so I just start barking into the speaker in broken Japanese, trying to let them get me out. And finally I get out and I start driving hundred kilometers down the road, which is only like 60 miles an hour, but it's, but it's fast in Japan. <laughs> You're not supposed to drive that fast. So I'm, I'm speeding and I'm going down the road and I'm like, okay, all right. Where are you? And I look at the clock and I just do the math, and I realize there's no possible way that I can get back to our apartment and get there. And so now I'm, I'm in this, I feel stuck because we had these $268 plane tickets that we're about to waste. And uh, the, the, it was our fault. The airline's probably not going to just help us out here. And so I'm going to have to either buy really expensive tickets or not go. And I just lost it. All the, all the lack of faith, the lack of trust that had been building in my heart for months just came pouring out. And like a good missionary, I began to scream curse words driving the van. I'm just being honest with you. I need the gospel more than any of you. I began to scream curse words, just completely dismayed, completely in disbelief that this could happen. And somehow, in his kindness and in his goodness, the Holy Spirit began to work in my heart. And those cries of of curses shifted into a simple cry for help. Help! Help! And seconds after, I cried to our Savior for help. So simply, so basically, with so little trust. My phone rings, and my wife says, I found the passports, they're in this other bag, come on back. Now, that for me was this moment of a journey that God's taken me on over the last couple of years. Which has just been a, lear- a journey of trying to learn how to trust him, how to believe that he's good. And uh, in the next several weeks, he, he guided me through the, the process of realizing for sure that this was stress caused by stress and beginning, beginning to take that seriously and, and do things to address that. And, and God's been really kind in the ways that he's brought healing and transformation. And all this came through a deeper understanding of the gospel. That Jesus is listening. Just as he listens to this blind beggar, he's listening to me. And, and I may have uh, betrayed him in my heart through a lack of trust. I may have betrayed him in my heart by not sharing the gospel with someone because I feel ashamed. I may have betrayed him in my heart because I'm stuck in sin. Regardless, he invites us to cry out. To cry out again. So my invitation to you this morning is whether you are filled with victory and faith, and this has been a really great stretch for you, and for you to celebrate by calling out to the Lord in prayer, or whether it's been a really hard stretch for you. Maybe you can relate to some of the experiences that I was describing, and you just barely have enough in your heart to to talk to God. I invite you to join me as we call out to Him in prayer.